Welcome to the Alpha Dude Podcast with Michael Pulser. What would it be like if you knew that you were unstoppable and you could live life on your terms? Better yet, how good would it feel knowing that on your deathbed, you had fulfilled all your potential and more? Life on Earth has a beginning and an end. It's what you do in the middle that counts. Let's look at how to make that part even better. If you're listening to this podcast, then you, like everybody on this planet, at some point, in some shape or form, has been attacked verbally. Yet so few of us are actually prepared to deal with this. We're we're not equipped to take on these attacks. We just don't know what to do. And often we freeze or do counterproductive measures, which just detract from the whole experience. What happens if you could actually go through this process and grow through it? What would happen if you could go through this process and actually have positive outcomes from it? That is the focus on this episode, how to defend yourself verbally. So as I said, everybody's been attacked verbally. And if we ask ourselves, what could have I done? We often go through these thoughts after the fact and say, well, I should have done this or some form of snappy comeback. And it's, it's kind of hard because unless if you're a genius at giving a great comeback, then it's it's probably not going to work for you. And sometimes the comebacks are just kind of corny or they don't actually work anyway. So let's, let's contrast this to physical self-defense. Physical self-defense is all about protecting our lives. So it's super important. So if you're listening to this and you don't train in some form of martial arts or you haven't had any self-defense training, then maybe you should check it out. But verbal self-defense is not so much about protecting our lives, it's about protecting ourselves in the form of our integrity. This could also fall into the categories of our self-esteem or our reputation. Self-defense. Often we think about self-defense and we think, well, why don't we just adopt the pacifism point of view? Why don't we just avoid all conflict as we can? And the best thing to do is probably do this, but realistically... There are things worth fighting for. And even if you do keep your nose clean, then people still find a way to get to you at some point in your life, even if you didn't even hurt anyone. But let's look at the concept of pacifism. So pacifism is when you love everybody, you love all people. So moving on to that, if you allow yourself to be hurt, you're not actually loving all people because You just allowed another person to actually hurt somebody else. And in this case, the other person that was hurt was yourself. So by allowing people to hurt yourself, it's not actually the definition of being a pacifist. Being a pacifist, in my opinion, is trying your best, of course, to keep your nose clean, to try and watch out to avoid violence, to avoid confrontation, to seek win-win peaceful solutions. But if you do get attacked, and this world is not perfect, so watch out, you will get attacked. Just make sure that you're ready for it. And make sure you have your philosophical underpinnings all sorted out so that you understand the reason behind why you need to defend yourself. There are so many approaches and systems that are in place that people advise when dealing with this topic. 
they the most common one is usually the comebacks the people who say hey i've got a a comeback that i can do whenever somebody insults me but the fact is that comebacks as i mentioned before they're very hit and miss often they're kind of juvenile so they're not really received and they're kind of seen to be rather silly Sometimes even worse, it leads to poor outcomes. I've seen relationships damaged just by having a silly combat put in the wrong place and following that, the relationship was just damaged and the two people just don't talk anymore. Following that, I've also seen another situation where people have been in fights physically or long-term hostile relationships that follow these negative comebacks. They're just not the way to achieve what you want in most circumstances. So as always, I advise a principle-based approach. So if we look at verbal self-defense from the personal upgrade system, it's simply a two-step process. The first step is step one, looking at frame control. And we've done episodes on this before. So if you look back and look at frame control episodes, it'll give you a good primer. But the frame that I really find the best for this is one of two things, depending on your mindset. The first frame is the parent frame. So if you're a parent already and you've got a little tiny toddler and the toddler says something that's out of place, if you take it personally, then you've got the problem. Because the fact is that this little tiny child doesn't have the comprehension and understanding to actually carry the weight of the words that they communicate. So it's simply water off a duck's back. You're like, well, he's just growing up. It's kind of whatever. So this frame is kind of useful anytime you have an insult or a verbal attack. Another one that I find really powerful is the presidential frame. Now, I mean, the current president, Donald Trump, if a reporter attacks him, they will get ripped to shreds. And it's sometimes amusing, depending on your politics, But even if you don't like him, look at Barack Obama. People would attack him and he'd come back in a witty place. Now, the thing is, the thing that joins these as a concept is the fact that they're both presidents, that they both have perhaps the highest authority in the land, that these guys are just truly gifted with so much power that anybody around them already knows this, that they can command such power that they have such respect, they can then put that into their communications. And the way they do this is by realizing that, hey, I have a power base and the other person talking to me, for better or worse, is at a lower level than me. Now, I kind of have a have an issue with comparing people and saying this person is below me like a, a caste system or anything like that. But this will be useful simply as an exercise Because, I mean, the alternative is better than having blood on the floor or for you to be verbally attacked and to have low self-esteem. So just stick with me. It's good if you can put the other person as a lower level than you. And that's to take on a pity frame. So presidential frame is a combination between having the power, the belief in yourself, and also the pity on the person that just attacked you. And from here, you can move on to the next step. And the next step is in crafting your response. Now let's predicate this firstly by saying that when you do this, you always have to make sure that you're, you're smiling, you're absolutely not on the offensive and you're not 
defensive at all. It's something that just doesn't affect you at all. A pause is so important because, as you know, if you play music, pauses are the thing that just brings the music out. And the pause allows that little beat in time so that they'll be more receptive to the response that you have. And then there's so many different things that you can do. But as I said, this is principle-based. So the best thing that you can do is from this power frame, you look over and then you can either laugh and ignore them if the situation is right. But if it requires something a little bit more, virtually anything you say from this powerful state will be seen as great. It will be seen as something that has impact because as we talked about in communication, most of it is based on body language and tonality. The words actually don't matter that much. So if somebody insults you and you just look at them and say, you're silly and you have everything that's perfect, even though that's probably the worst comeback you've ever heard, it's still going to be more effective than crafting something and say, oh, have you looked in the mirror lately? Or have you called the idiot department or some other generic response that's just going to look corny and I wouldn't advise to do. But if you want to stay in this state and do something that's a little bit more sophisticated, you could do one of three things. And the three responses that I particularly like is to misrepresent whatever they say. This is gold when it comes to sarcasm. So if somebody is saying something that is positive, but in a sarcastic way, like, oh, you did a really great job, or, or, or you look real handsome today, in a way that's just condescending and sarcastic, then just misrepresent what they say and say, hey, you're right, I, I do look really good. That's great, thank you. When done with just the right amount of discernment, you'll get an amazing response. The other one is to join in the insult. So if somebody looks at you and is disparaging based on your looks, if they say, hey, your hair looks awful today or, or something that's generic, you can say, hey, I forgot to tie my shoes today as well. But remember, whatever you're doing, keep your frame, keep the body language, don't lower down to their level. Don't be a response machine. You've got to have that response where you're in that frame. You casually glance over. You allow a little bit of space. You have the authority. And then you say, I forgot to tie my shoes as well and just continue conversation with the other person. Or smile at the other person and wink if you want to have a joke out of it. These things don't have to lead to cutting the other person down. Often they can lead to building up relationships. But... If they need to cut the other person, so be it. You can just do it in a way that's socially respectable. And the final one is to flip things. So if somebody is describing that you've done a terrible job at work or anything like that, then you can say, oh yeah, I heard you didn't do so well at work the other day or, or flip whatever they said back onto them. Or if they say something like, you're looking pretty average today or you're looking pretty ugly, you can say, are you looking pretty ugly today or are you average? Now, when you hear me say this, it sounds like this stuff just won't work. But as I said at the start, it's all predicated on the fact that you have this power frame. Virtually anything you say will be effective if you're in this frame and if you do it right. Just remember, 
If you do want to take it the next step further, you can either misrepresent, join in the insult, or flip it if you want to take it one step further. Finally, the aim, the outcome for all of this is to have fun and to foster relationships. This is far better than destroying the other person. It takes time, it takes planning, and it takes some preparation. So always remember that when you do this, don't take yourself or the situation too seriously. We all take ourselves far too seriously all the time. We have to inject humor into our lives and into our communications. This will be the foundation for any of this sort of verbal self-defense. The takeaway is this. Do this the right way and you'll get the right response. And if you're one of the people that listens to this sort of thing and it's like, well, I just, I don't need to defend myself. I'm more of a pacifist or I just want to avoid these situations. Look, power to you. But if the time comes when somebody is going to insult you, then you don't defend yourself. Then that means you don't value yourself. And when that happens, your metacognition takes over. You think about your thoughts, that you're not actually worth it. And the opposite is true. Therefore, you won't be in the place to defend others. And you won't be in the place to defend yourself. And you won't be in the place where you wanted to be initially of being a righteous person. If you don't stand for something, then you'll fall for anything. Always be prepared to stand up for others, and that includes standing up for yourself. Notice that the title of this episode is about verbal self-defense, not verbal offense. That means that we're not looking to hurt others, we're looking to protect ourselves. And in protecting ourselves, we look after something that's special. If you don't treat yourself like you're special, you don't acknowledge that you're worthwhile. And if you don't acknowledge that you're worthwhile, then you infer that you're worth less. And if you're worth less, then what are you doing here? Why are we talking about getting the best out of life? Why are we talking about being the best that we can be for fulfilling all of our potential? It's imperative that we use these skills to allow ourselves to communicate to ourselves that we are worthwhile and that we need to stand up for ourselves and of course for other people as well. And then from there we can move on and live our true greatest life. Speaking about greatest lives, we've got a great guest on next. His name is Earl and he runs the podcast, The Leadership Phalanx. He's a speaker, coach and mentor and he's got a fascinating story. I'd like to present Earl with his segment. Hello, everybody. Earl Breon here with the Leadership Phalanx. I always have to pronounce that last word kind of hard because uh, not many people are still familiar with the Greek formation phalanx. Um, anyway, Michael, thank you for asking me to be a guest on your show. Uh, as you and I have kind of discussed uh, trying to, to get this thing fleshed out here, this has been a kind of a struggle for me. Uh, you know, I can go on a podcast and, and be interviewed and, and do that with ease. But when Michael asks you to kind of examine your life and, and share your stories with his audience, it makes you really think. Um, and I really didn't feel like my life story was that impressive, that it was worth sharing. 
but I did eventually get to a point where every smart husband should get to, and I consulted my wife and I told her about the the opportunity and what was being asked of me and how I was struggling with it. And she gave me this blank stare. It's like, how? How can you be struggling with this? Your life is pretty amazing. You've had a great journey. And, uh, you know, she kind of forced me to really, really, really dive deep. And, you know, I'm thinking about how my life unfolded. So this is my life story in a nutshell, if I were to put it kind of in a timeline format. You know, I was born in Charleston Naval Hospital. Um, my mom and dad split very shortly thereafter. I really haven't seen my dad much in my 40-plus years of life now. I think maybe, maybe I can get to the second hand if I count the number of times I've seen that, uh, that gentleman. Uh, my mom's had her fair share of issues throughout my life, uh, more so early on in the, quote, formative years. Uh, she wasn't really around a lot. She had uh, a couple of bad habits, including bad taste in men and uh, a, a light drug issues. Never anything too hardcore, but, you know, enough to keep her away. Uh, I was raised by my grandparents, uh, World War II generation types. And, uh, you know, that's always kind of how I, I describe myself because I'm, uh, I'm a generation Xer. Some people call me a cusper right on the, the, the rim between being a Gen Xer and a uh, millennial. Um, but I was raised by World War II vets, the greatest generation, what we grew up calling them. So I've got a lot of unique points of view on life with my personal experiences and the influence uh, directly from being raised by my grandparents. And that led to my work ethic and, and our circumstances. We didn't have a lot of money. We grew up in... Uh, northeast Tennessee and just didn't have a whole lot of money and and so whenever school events or whatever would come around and uh, we had the fundraisers to help offset the school trip costs you know I either got out there and busted my tail and sold all the wrapping paper and Christmas cards and candy and whatever else they were selling or I didn't have the money to go it was that simple so I had to have that work ethic to get out there and really kind of bust my tail if I wanted to do these things and, and that started, you know, early on. Like, I remember maybe as early as second or third grade, riding my bike around town, knocking on doors and selling. Um, you know, that work ethic kind of carried over into my first, like, legit job. Uh, I was working at a, uh, it was a uh, warehouse that processed uh, incoming tomato picks. And I remember the equipment there would... Uh, it would constantly get gummed up with glue. It was what folded the boxes, get gummed up with glue and get all sorts of issues, get jammed up. And it always bugged me that I had to rely on a maintenance tech to come fix it. So I started paying attention to the things they were doing and how they were doing it. And uh, whenever I got a jam, it got to a point where I just started fixing my own machine. And, and the boss noticed and uh, he ended up promoting me uh, in, into leading that section. Well, here I was, just turned 16 years old, and now I'm in charge of leading, you know, people who are in their 30s and 40s. And, uh, you know, that was kind of a trial by fire, a crucible, if you will, on leadership techniques. Because how many 30, 40-year-old guys are going to listen to a 16-year-old kid? So influence, that was a skill that I picked up there. 
So my circumstances have taught me uh, hard work. They've taught me the, the power of influence uh, and perseverance. And uh, I go into the Marines because hard work, influence, perseverance, those are the things that uh, you know the Marine Corps prides themselves in. So I figure, yeah, I'm a good fit for the Marines. Well, I get in the Marines and, and I'm taught more leadership skills and I'm given a, a base uh, job skill. Uh, I actually was a, uh, my job series doesn't exist anymore, but I was actually what they called back then a basic weather observer. I supported uh, uh, airfield operations uh, with meteorological information. Uh, so the aircraft was always safe and, and knew how it could perform in certain theaters. Uh, but I was stationed in uh, at Marine Corps Air Station Fatima in Okinawa, Japan, when President Clinton signed the executive order mandating that all forward deployed troops uh, had to take uh, the controversial anthrax vaccine. Well, I was one of the few that had uh, adverse reactions to the anthrax vaccine. Long story short, as soon as uh, my heart rate would reach a certain level, my blood pressure would drop and I'd pass out. Now, even people who aren't that familiar with Marines know that the Marine Corps is built on physicality and, and physical fitness. And if you can't get your heart rate up or without passing out, well, you're no good to the Marine Corps anymore. And so my dream career kind of got yanked away from me. But it gave me a vocational skill set that I was able to take out into the civilian sector and put to use, making a pretty good living, not going to lie. Uh, I made a much better living in the civilian world than I would have ever made monetarily-wise staying in the Marines, which was my, my goal. I was going to be a 20-year Marine. So I had the hard work, I had the perseverance, and uh, the, the influence. I got some more leadership skills built on that, and I got the vocational skills. Well, I get into the new job, and I see nothing but miserable people all around me. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, you've got all of this great stuff. You've got a great job, but you are so miserable. Well, it didn't take me long to figure out that the biggest source of misery was the leadership decisions that were being made at both the local level and, and at each step up the chain. There was a lot of managing going on. There wasn't a lot of leading happening. Well, fortunately for me, I had the skill set to try to uh, influence that situation and make it better. So I took all of these lessons that I had learned, and I put them together into a package, and I started doing training. Well, it, it, it took off, and it led to being asked to go to other offices and, and other management uh, levels through the organization to present the training. And then one day, somebody looks at me and says, you're pretty good at this. Have you ever thought about doing it professionally? I'm like, well, I am. I'm doing it professionally for uh, the organization I work for. They're like, no. I mean, like, civilian world, private sector, professionally. So that was what led to the formation of the leadership phalanx. You know, the, the principles we teach go all the way back to uh, Sun Tzu's Art of War. Uh, you can see them in... Uh, the Spartan culture, Viking culture, these things are time-tested principles of leadership. And so it just made sense that we would call our organization the Leadership Phalanx. 
But going through this exercise that Michael put me through and, and thinking of the life to where I am now with that, with the leadership failings, it really brought home that theme of positive mental attitude and seeing these negative things that happen in my life and not necessarily choosing to focus on the negative, but the positivity that I gained at each step. And, and it just so happened, it was kind of like the divine convergence, if you will. I was listening to a book titled Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton, and it was about the prisoners of war who were uh, held at the Hanoi Hilton, Hualo Prison. And the, the leader of that group was Admiral James Stockdale, and he happened to be a, uh, a student of the Stoic philosophers. And apparently one of his favorite quotes was uh, by a gentleman named Epictetus. I've heard it pronounced Epictetus, Epictetus, tomato, tomato at this point. But it says, men are disturbed not by things, but the view of which they take of them. And going through this exercise and hearing uh, Stockdale talk about that quote and what it meant in this book, that, that was my life. It is, I was disturbed not by the things, but the view of which I took of them. And luckily for me, uh, I had that positive mental attitude. Now, how and where it came from, I, I can honestly not tell you. I don't remember it being a lesson that my grandfather taught me you know, hey, look at the sunny side of life or any of that stuff. It was just something that I naturally did. Maybe it was a survival mechanism. I, I really don't know. But if I look back at those steps, and yeah, my life is not that terrible, but each one of those steps, I could have made different choices. I could have chosen to focus on the fact that my parents split and, and, and use it as a crutch to be, oh, pitiful me. I could have looked at the fact that I was raised by uh, my grandparents, and they were out of touch with me and who I am. They just didn't get me. I, I could have looked at my Marine Corps career being taken away from me the way it was. Is You know, here I fought this hard to get here where I want to be, and it's taken away from me. But I didn't. I focused on those skills that each set. It's kind of a natural tendency for me, and I built on them to the next step and the next step and the next step. And then it finally led to where I am right now, where I'm in an organization where we help other people overcome their hurdles. So if I had to leave you with one thing about my life story, it'd be that positive mental attitude. Don't focus on the negative so much, but focus on the lesson that the negative has taught you. And that would be the exercise I would ask each of you to go through because Michael really put me in my out of my comfort zone on this by asking me to examine my life and come to these conclusions on my own. Take some time, think about your life. When you get to those points where you see as negatives, I want you to kind of write those down, but keep going on through the exercise. Then I want you to come back and I want you to examine those negatives. And I want you to ask yourself, what would my life look like if I hadn't had this happen? Because I can tell you right now from personal experience, whenever I get to ask that question, what would I change? When people hear my story, what would I change? It's that. Uh, I wouldn't change anything. I, I just absolutely wouldn't because those negatives that happened in my life built on positives and built on positives and the next negative built on positives. So just think about that. It's kind of a, it's a wonderful life kind of experiment, but what would your life really look like if you had not had these things happen? 
if you didn't have that skill set that you achieved from it. It's not a Pollyanna kind of thing. It's not a, uh, uh, oh, if you believe it, you can achieve it. It's, this has happened to me. What has it taught me? And how has it made my life better instead of worse? Because if you really go through that exercise, you'll find out that those negatives in your life that you've been dwelling on have really led to a lot of the positive outcomes in your life. That's my story. That's what I took out of it when I was going through this exercise. And I've said it a couple times. I'm going to say it again. Michael, thank you for uh, keeping pushing me on this and, and helping me go down this path. My name again is Earl Breon. I am with the Leadership Phalanx, P-H-A-L-A-N-X. You can find us online at www.leadershipphalanx.com. Uh, we do our own podcast as well, The Burden of Command. Uh, we've had a lot of great guests on there. So I, I just hope you got some value out of this. You get some value out of our site. Maybe get some value of, out of the podcast. And I really appreciate you spending the time with me. And Michael, again, thank you for this opportunity. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. If so, rate it from the place you downloaded it. For any questions, send an email to michaelpulser at gmail.com.